Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Sydney Montgomery. She's the CEO and founder of Outline It, as well as a graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law. The inspiration for Outline It came from her work helping first-generation, minority, and non-traditional students gain acceptance into college and law schools. Her business has since helped thousands of students get into higher education. After doing over 100 interviews with professionals and entrepreneurs, I still find it very rare for them to be able to articulate their business and metrics in a compelling way. That said, Sydney speaks with a confidence and grace that I think we can all learn from. We also speak to issues of diversity and inclusion, which, frankly for me, can feel a bit like a minefield. However, Sydney helped demystify some of this so that it can become more commonplace with us in our organizations and our daily lives. This was certainly an enlightening conversation for me, so enjoy the show. Sydney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Corey. Happy to be here. Yes. I'm looking forward to our conversation as I think you're earlier in your career, but you've done some really fascinating things. But the best way to start is just a, a brief background on yourself so we can kind of set the foundation for our conversation. So I'm going to pass it over to you. Absolutely. So my name is Sydney Montgomery. I am 29. I'm currently based in Princeton, New Jersey, but hail from Montgomery County, Maryland, which is definitely still home for me. I am the CEO and founder of Outline It, which is an early stage ed tech company. And I'm also the founder and executive director of the Barrier Breakers nonprofit. It is a faith-based educational nonprofit with a mission to increase access to and success in higher education for BIPOC and other marginalized students. And to date, we've helped about 4,000 students on their higher ed journey. In your 29 years, you've done a lot, including Harvard Law. Let's talk about the about Outline. And, you know, I got on there and I started poking around on the tool itself and you've built out a software piece, but you've also raised money. Where did it come from? And then also I want to ask you and is like, where's that going to go, especially now with some of the, the AI applications, but can you give us a brief of what it is? And then let's talk about potentially how you've been financing and building it. And then let's talk about the future of it. So Outline is an interactive writing platform and pedagogical tool to help students and also teachers write better structured essays. So to help teachers as they're teaching essay development, help students as they're working through essay development, it is a tool that does help with brainstorming, but it also most importantly adds a kinesthetic element, so an action element, if you will, to the writing process, really focusing on structuring. What does it look like to build my main points? How do my main points connect to one another? What are the transitions that go with it? What are the details that need to be added to my main points? So it's really building an outline as old fashioned as that sounds. 
But then also there's an interactive rubric element to it where students get to highlight the part of their essays that correspond to their teacher's rubric. It helps students stay organized across their classes and across their rubrics. But also what I'm most proud of is that it gives language to the pre-writing process because so often students, especially students with executive functioning or ADHD, and I have ADHD, my sister has both executive functioning and ADHD, and I know what it's like for them to see a blank piece of paper and just sort of give up and and to stop. And a teacher asks a student, hey, what happened? Where'd you get stuck? And the kid doesn't know. They're like, I don't know. I got stuck. I, it, it's irrelevant to me. And then, you know, they move on. But if we start to give language to, oh, hey, Johnny, I see you made it to sequencing. Or I see that you finished transitions, but had issues with details. Or if a student can actually say, you know, I understood my main points, but after that, it was a little fuzzy. Like now we have some real language about the pre-drafting process, which before has just kind of been this amorphous blob of, I don't know, you mind map and then magically you have an essay. We can break that down a little bit and actually give students the help that they need at the point of the process that they're getting stuck at. Writing's fascinating. And like, even in our pre-call, you know, I saying like, most people don't know how to write. And I think in university, we jammed through some essays that if all of us went back and read them, we could probably be a little embarrassed. <laughs> like, you know, even if you got a good grade on it, how did you come to do that? And what was kind of the first thing to start building the software? Because that's a pretty big leap to say, I'm going to actually go and get this thing coded up. And then either you want to raise money or other way around, but Bring us there. It was a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think I fully knew the leap that I was taking when I took it, but probably for the better. So I am someone that has always considered myself a good writer. However, I went to Princeton. I was the first student from my high school to go to Princeton, mostly, I think, due to the strength of my admissions essays and the teachers that helped me through it, because I had no idea what I was doing in the college admission process. But I got to Princeton and immediately realized the kinds of writing that I was trained to do and the types of writing my professors expected of me, vastly different. I felt pretty overwhelmed for the first time. And I remember my freshman SEM writing class and the way that students had been taught previously to critique the authors and the scholars was so foreign to me. And I did end up becoming an English major through process of elimination. And I remember my sophomore year research, like fundamental research teacher, she basically told me that I did not know how to research. I did not know how to write a research paper. And I remember my junior year professor telling me that I had no idea how to use commas. It was this weird thing because I liked writing and I felt like I was good at writing, but I also felt like there were really big holes. And for me, a lot of those holes did come down to organization and structure. I went to the writing center a bunch, mostly because I had ideas, but the structuring of them, the figuring out what order they should go that makes sense, it was really difficult for me. And then as I graduated, I went to Harvard Law School. I did practice law for a bit, but I had actually started working with students on their admissions essays and also just academic essays sometime in college. So I've spent more than 10 years, probably 12 to 15 years at this point, working with students on their essay and their writing on some capacity. And I had noticed over the last few years that it didn't matter if the student was 12 or even if they were 58 or 62, 
It's the structure. It's the organization. It's being able to see, ah, that paragraph really should go up there. And, and this thought really connects here that students really struggle with and adult writers really struggle with. And so I thought, you know, what if there was a software that helped students? We had kind of developed a curriculum in the work that I was doing with students that was having some pretty exciting results. And so I proved it out over a couple hundred students and said, you know, what would it look like if we actually had a software that did this? And more importantly, what would it look like if English pedagogy changed a bit? Because if you look at the statistics, only 27% of eighth and 12th grade students are passing national writing proficiency standards. Only 11% of black eighth and 12th grade students are. And so, you know, we talk about STEM and STEAM a lot in this country, but we don't talk about writing. Like we just have kind of, I think, accepted that Americans can't write and so damaging because if you are a student who has internalized, I'm bad at writing, like, I mean, cover letters, memos, professional reports. I have friends who are, you know, senior associates now at firms who talk about the junior associates and how they write. Like, it shows up everywhere. And for me, especially in my career, I think where I realized it was so important was when I started being able to write think pieces and bylines and realize, oh, writing is actually a way for me to get some of my thoughts out into the professional space and to solidify myself as an industry leader what would it happen if I had decided that I wasn't good at writing? I couldn't express myself in this way. Like how limiting is that for your profession? And so that's really like the genesis for it. And we did have a small amount of investment from a group that really cared about supporting Black-owned businesses and especially Black education and kind of a very small pre-tech round. And so that helped us, I'm non-technical as a founder, so that helped us with the third-party company that was able to help us code it. Honestly, it was a lot of bootstrapping. It was, there were some loans. There was a lot of friends and family around, although I am from like a lower middle-class background. My mom's a Jamaican immigrant. My parents are military. So the friends and family was not super deep as some friends and family rounds go, right? I was still pretty proud of the way a lot of my English teachers actually invested. People from my church invested, uh, not amounts of money that weren't significant for them, even though they're not amounts of money that we would think of as being, you know, a, a check for an investment round. But it all kind of came in until we were finally able to get a couple accelerators to say, hey, yeah, actually, this is a good idea. She's onto something. And you know, it's funny in the investment world as, you know, as a black woman, it's hard to raise venture capital, but you start getting some names behind you and it does add some credibility. And then we were able to land a marquee client. And so then all of a sudden we had 3000 students on our platform within two months of launch. And so that really helped with credibility and, and, and the results were actually there. And so it's been really hard for sure, raising funds. But I think we have a unique way of looking at writing. And I think there's a lot of AI tools and chat GPT. And we're not really planning currently to use generative AI. There will be AI. We, we do have that planned to launch pretty soon, actually, and also some natural language processing. But I think that a lot of the tools out there are missing two things. 
they're not really focused on skill building as they are focused on getting somewhere quickly and getting somewhere quickly is great. But if it doesn't change a student's confidence and their ability to write, then I feel like it's still a waste. And the second thing is that they're not actually making life easier for teachers. And the thing is I can help one student learn skill building, but if the American writing system is still trash, then we are still going to continue to have systemic issues. And the teachers, it is certainly not their fault. I mean, most teachers are fantastic at actually teaching writing, but the way that our school system has deprioritized teachers' time and have given them so much to do and the workload and the burnout on the large class sizes, it requires them to have tools that, quite frankly, we don't have in the secondary school education as much. So much there. Okay, where to go? Like, I'm thinking about how, <laughs> like, how the tool applies, how it can start to solve some of these issues when it comes to writing. I'm thinking about the power of writing. And when somebody has that in their back pocket of being able to communicate through the written word, and then also what that does for your mind for communicating a spoken argument, it's just unbelievable. It can become a superpower. So I appreciate what you're doing there. I want to talk about your experience in raising capital. And you say as a Black woman, it's been difficult. Can you talk to me about those challenges? Absolutely. I mean, the statistics, of course, speak for themselves. Last year, funding for Black entrepreneurs went down 45%. Less than 1% of all VC capital goes to Black women. So, I mean, statistically, the odds are not in your favor as a Black woman, especially in ed tech. Sometimes I'm like, man, if I had built something in fintech or creator economy, but no, I needed to do ed tech, which I think is an inherently difficult space to be in as an early stage startup because the sales cycle for education is known to be difficult, regardless of whether you're able to make sales or not. Like I actually, you know, we have been able to have pretty good traction in a short period of time, but the perception, the fear, the anxiety is that, oh, ed tech is difficult. Will schools actually buy it? Will students actually buy it? Well, like you get, you have all of these questions that I don't see as much in other industries. And I think it is, it's a little sad because I think EdTech has the power to be one of the most impactful places of innovation, but most of the power does stay concentrated in in big companies. Although there are a lot of EdTech companies, you don't see as many into the schools. I think you see more B2C in the EdTech industry, but I also think that that exacerbates inequality because the students that need it the most are probably not the ones that are going to be paying themselves for the ed tech. And that's been something that I've consistently wrestled with, that I want to use our platform to help bridge the gap in education, which means it has to end up in the hands of students that need it, right? And so that does look like creative business models. I just want to say, like, you know, I think you make a point there. When you look at ed tech, like something like a Duolingo, that's a name everybody knows. But it's a luxury to sit there and learn a second language. When you are low on resources, in an unstable family, and on and on and on, you know, and you have these things facing you, you're not saying, I'd really love to learn Mandarin right now. It's interesting because we, we had a focus group of kids that used, I mean, we've done a number of pilots, and I'm really big on feedback from our students and from teachers. But we had this focus group of students who used the software, who did say fantastic things. Some of those testimonials are on our website about how it helped them and their confidence levels. Every single one of them said they would not have asked their parents to pay for it. 
most of them were students of color. You know, they say, yeah, I mostly try to look for things that my school offers, or maybe I try to look for some free things, but I don't really try to ask my parents for a lot of this kind of stuff if I don't have to. I mean, it just really speaks to like what demographic, right? Because I'm sure there is a demographic of, of students who ask their parents for all kinds of things. It struck me in this particular focus group with these particular students who were impacted by the software that none of them, and it's not a very expensive software on a BDC level, but none of them would have thought to ask their parents. They were more likely to try to find the money themselves than they were to ask their parents. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah, that is interesting. And, you know, for those who are more willing to find the money themselves, it almost speaks to their, perhaps their, their own perseverance. I don't know how to unpack that, but it's an interesting kind of experience you've had in, in looking at these study groups. So you make the point that going into ed tech is also difficult because of, and so like, yeah, raising capital for anyone there is going to be difficult because long sales cycles you know, probably a difficult sell even to the individual once they have it. You get into a an organization, a distribution network, and are people going to adopt it, pick it up versus some social meme meme app that just it has easy virality. You know, it's probably yeah, like the AI headshots, like boom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's so silly, right? Can you build on this? What advice do you have? You're in a unique position here that, yeah, what advice do you have for the audience? Yeah, and we've raised just shy of a million dollars in VC funding, and we're still fundraising right now. I think, especially as an entrepreneur of color, you know, I think there's this um, advice that people give where, okay, you have a period of time that you spend fundraising, but fundraising takes away from your ability to grow the business, right? And so I think, you know, people usually look at those as two different seasons of your business. I would say as an entrepreneur of color, they are the same season. You must always be actively building your business while also actively fundraising because the mark keeps changing and the amount of traction that you need keeps changing. Like I think I have also had the great fortune of uh, starting my raise during 2022, right after the war, 2022 being one of the hardest years for VC, but like also here's 2023, not necessarily any easier. And so I think there are a lot of ways in which if I had been raising like a year or two earlier, it would have been different because, you know, say, hey, we're, you know, we just launched in August, we have 3000 users on the platform. We have, you know, a great CTO. I love our CTO, Shambit Basu. He was at Yahoo. He was at Credit Sesame. He was at Check Money. You know, we've got really great accelerators funding us. Like on some level, I think in a different era, that might have been a pretty easy round to close. Uh, Princeton and Harvard grad founded platform, all those things. It's definitely be interesting to see that despite my pedigree or even with my pedigree, right? Like this is... Or maybe I've gotten this far because of my pedigree. But regardless, I sometimes think about other founders who don't even have those markers of credibility, but have a fantastic product nonetheless. But it really did come from being incredibly scrappy. And so, like I said, we had some accelerators, Visible Hands, Expert Dojo, um, and Halcyon that really believed in us early on and also helped us think about those kind of creative ways of getting revenue, also non-dilutive grants. And so New Schools Venture Fund really helped us out with non-dilutive funding. And then it's all about warm introductions. And I think networking is the best thing. I mean, I'm sure that gets said all the time, but the way that warm introductions from our first funds have helped us get our next funds 
has been so helpful and then staying organized. And I learned that invisible hands, like putting all the investors basically in a sales pipeline (laughs) and figuring out, okay, I followed up with this person. Okay. Like, are they on my, you know, my investor updates? Are they getting information from me? Have I checked in lately? Being not afraid to be a little bit persistent in a respectful way, but just saying, Hey, just in case you forgot, I wanted to give you some updates about our traction. And then for me, I think it's also been about building that kind of press, right? And so getting my name out there, speaking, even if I'm not speaking about outline, but speaking on these issues that relate to outline, and then sharing those with investors, continuing to try to always make more and more traction. And so figuring out, so I said, okay, how do we get as many people using this as possible? How do we get as many pilots? And so while I couldn't change the sales cycle, what I could absolutely change was the number of schools that were beta testing us. And so right now we have over 50 schools that are using it in their classrooms, beta testing, but that's still traction and also data. And I'm a big fan of data. It's not revenue, but it is data and it is traction and and it's, you know, getting those testimonials and then getting data, right. And then feeding that right back to investors. And so it's kind of a It's a relentless focus on product building with then, you know, an eye towards investor relations and how do we keep this going? I get inspired by like the founder of Canva, for example, who is fantastic. And I, you know, read that a hundred VCs told her no, because they were like, there's no way Canva will be able to compete with like Photoshop and those sort of things. But like, here we are with Canva. And so I've always taken heart. I think it's been hard, but I've always taken heart that most investors actually love our idea. Usually the issue is not the idea or the problem or the solution. There's actually a lot of universal agreement in that. I think a lot of it does come down to fund priorities, our traction, confidence in our monetization, and then it's just about, okay, so I know exactly what the objections are. How do I continue to try to, to focus on those? And I won't be able to convince everyone, but I don't need to convince everyone. I do just need to convince enough people so that we can close our round and get to the place of revenue that speaks for itself. I'm just going to interrupt our interview here to offer up our free masterclass on investor marketing. If you're interested in learning about the key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, this masterclass is for you. It covers everything you need to know about how to build a successful investor marketing program for your public company. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass or click the link in the show notes. I'm 130-some interviews in to this podcast and have been in the space of, of financing and working with early stage companies pretty much all my career and in the background of finance. Everything you're saying to me is the check marks of a great entrepreneur. I'm thrilled to hear the way you talking through this and with the nuance that you are. I'm like, this is awesome. Thank you. I'm curious if you've ever experienced issues because of the color of your skin when it comes to raising capital. And I damn well hope you prove every one of them wrong. I appreciate that. I am sure that I have, you know, people often don't say things directly like we're not funding you because you're black. Although I I will say that ironically, some of the funds that specifically target 
entrepreneurs of color, I think not through their own fault, but through the system that is VC and we think about their LPs, I think some of them have less room for error. And then ironically, I think they actually become some of the harder funds to to get, right? Because they can't take as much risk in, an, in a very ironic fashion. Um, but I will say that, you know, there was a point when I was raising and I, I mean, we have a chief operating officer, we have a CTO, we ha- I mean, we have a good team. There's 14 people and not all of them are employees, but we have a strong team at this point. I, you know, I have three full-time dev people offshore, one full-time onshore. And, you know, people will still be like, but you don't have a technical co-founder and I'm just not sure about your tech. And I'm like, but I have the technical mm-hmm. manpower, right? Or, or they'll be yeah. like, well, you know, we just single founders. And listen, and there are some VCs that absolutely will never found a single founder. And I get that. But I also think there's some coding in their language, right? I wonder if I were white man Brad with the same team and support that I have, if we'd be having the same conversation because... Like I said, in a lot of ways, I feel like our traction to this point, Outline was incorporated in April. So we're actually coming up on almost the year mark. We've had about $84,000 in revenue already. And we got that within two months of the software actually launching. I feel sometimes in the way that some, some of the responses are coded, not all of them, and you can never know for sure, but it speaks to them just not feeling like I am capable enough with the team that I have. And sometimes that can feel a little bit like, well, perhaps if you were a white man, we would have the confidence that we need that you can get it done. I also have to say there was this moment in one of the accelerators where I was told that I was focusing too much on race. And I mean, you've heard me explain outline. I'm not saying it's only for black students or any of that, but I I am very clear that I want our software to be part of bridging the equity gap in education. And I remember directly being told, well, that's not really fundable. And you can do that once (laughs) you've like, you know, you've made it and then like, you know, outline can donate the money or whatever. But if you start saying too much about equity, it's, you know, people are going to get turned off. And it's like, is it because the black girl is talking about race that you're saying that? But also, this is the product, right? Like, this is the mission behind it. And the why the software can be used by anyone. But I don't think I should have to hide my why when they ask the story behind the product. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I, I want to go back to just, I really, really appreciate the way you, you walked us through the company and through the funding and, and the nuance there. And then when it comes to these other things, I can, I just want to recognize the, the difficulties you've had there, but like, you know, I mean, just, yeah, I think to some degree, these are just parts of raising capital and, you know, you never know what, how it's coded, I would suppose. You can never know for sure, right? I can, you know, perhaps that was, perhaps there's nothing more than what they said, but you never know. It's inspirational what you're doing. I'm curious about you growing up in a military family and how that's been for you. And the reason why is because like, well, as a, as a Canadian, like our military could be classified as cute. We don't have a big military culture. And, you know, I certainly didn't grow up in anything like that. I grew up in the restaurant business of all things. And so how has that influenced you? And what's that been like for you? Yeah, my parents both met in the Navy. My parents are divorced. They're separated now, but they met in the Navy. And my dad did 22 years to retirement as the senior chief in the Navy. 
and my parents made the decision not to move me. And then later my sister, my sister's 11 years younger than me, but they made the decision not to move us so that we'd have the best educational potential. Um, but my dad, you know, was deployed and was away from the family for you know, periods of time for sure. And that was definitely really hard. My parents, I think, tried to make it better by making me so busy, which I think in a lot of ways is why I'm able to like juggle so much right now, because I spent my entire childhood juggling so much. There's kind of this theory, and they were not wrong, where if they just put me in enough activities, I won't miss my dad as much because I I will just be so busy uh, that time will go by quickly. And again, to some degree, they were right. I mean, time moved really quickly. There were definitely periods where I missed my dad a lot. But then there were other periods where there was just so much on my plate that it's like, you have to kind of keep pushing. I feel like a lot of those skills that I built as a kid transferred to this entrepreneurship grind. I think the other thing that my dad has always taught me is that there, there just always is a way. Like, you know, defeat is really not an answer. And I feel like that's very military, right? You must do the battle. And so I think for me in this journey, even when things were rough, even when, you know, runway was short, even when whatever, it's just like, cool, we just, we must find a way and we will find a way. Leave no stone unturned. And I think I really learned that from them. Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of, I guess for me, a really interesting way to grow up because it's uh well just so foreign and i i don't know i yeah. no i think i think it taught me a lot about service too so i went to this military sleepaway camps as a kid called operation purple is run through the national military family association and it's like these weeks where all these military kids from across the country whose parents are deployed that's a requirement or recently deployed come together and you know just can kind of meet other kids and i remember I, the last one that i did i was 15 or 14 and i was in colorado and the requirement was to come back and do a service project, something that really impacted your community. And you know, otherwise, the National Military Family Association, I think, would probably charge you whatever the cost of the program was. No one really found out. Everyone did a service project. But I think it was really helpful because it was, I had ex- actually ended up making like a baby 501c3. And I, you know, I, I helped students learn how to figure skate for free. But it was my first, like business, if you will, like incorporated with the IRS and and doing all these taxes and stuff. And also learning that like I could give back at a really young age and I could actually make impact at a really young age. And so I think like those values that the military and the National Military Family Association prided itself on, like really trickled down to me. When you mentioned service, you know, for me growing up in the restaurant business, it brings about just like, there's something so to me purposeful when you serve others. And I even want to bring up a conversation I had with one of our guests named Rick Rule. And at the beginning of our conversation, before we even clicked record, he said, I look forward to being useful. Such a simple word. Is he just kind of placating me with like, I've got a lot of money to manage. Like, why am I here? But when I looked at it at the end, there was so much purpose and so much meaning and service in that word of being useful, which it was really quite incredible for me. So great experience there. And I find that, you know, I'm totally going off on a tangent here, but if I was to to be the, the leader of a country, I would make it mandatory military service for a year or two for everybody to recognize. There are a lot of countries that contribute. do that. There, there are a lot of countries that do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, who am I to say is I'm just sitting here podcasting, but that's, I believe that that's an important thing from building people's purpose and recognizing that there's a lot to, to giving back and, and to serving. So where to go from here? I'm curious about, I don't know if I'm going into a minefield here, 
but I want to ask, when we talk about equity and inclusion and all of these, you know, kind of things that I think are very important, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings there. Also, how do we balance these things with merit and a meritocracy? Can you talk us through some of that? Yeah. So I think that when I focus on equity, it's really about opportunity, right? I think this notion of meritocracy is probably fictional, um, one, because I think you can only really have a meritocracy if everyone is actually starting at the same place. And then, right, it's kind of like a controlled science experiment where you control for all other factors and then you can actually see. But that's not how the world works. We're not all starting from the same place. And I think that's kind of the difference between equity and equality. But really, it's about opportunity. Like I went to Princeton. I went to Harvard Law School. It opened tremendous doors for me. I almost didn't apply to Princeton, though, because, well, I basically chose my colleges based off of Gilmore Girls because I didn't really know how you were supposed to choose colleges. And so I was like, oh, Rory Gilmore went to Yale. Let's look at Connecticut. Connecticut's great. I applied to Princeton because New Jersey was next to Connecticut or near Connecticut. So then I applied to some schools in New Jersey. Like there was not a lot of thought put into it at all. Like I applied to six schools and Princeton absolutely changed my life. But if I hadn't had, one, if I didn't have teachers that believed in me and actually told me that I could do it and helped me do it. And if I didn't even have going back to like, you know, information dissemination and the importance of information really being the most important commodity that we have, right? If I didn't know to even apply, I wouldn't have. And not to say that I would have been lesser if I hadn't gone to Princeton or so-and-so and so-and-so, but I would not have had the same doors and I might not be here, right? Sitting here on the podcast with the two companies that I have. I think that there's a lot of ways in which I'm privileged because those schools they open doors for me. They give people the benefit of the doubt. They said, well, maybe we can invite her into the room. Maybe she has something to say that people don't give the benefit of the doubt to others, especially people that look like me. And so it's really not about merit when you think about it, because I firmly believe always that there's someone smarter than I am who just doesn't have the opportunity to have a platform or know how to have a platform, or even have that mental space to do it because there's so many other things that they're thinking about. One of our, our sales directors, he said, with outline and the platform we're building, like, what if the cure to cancer is sitting in the minds of a child who doesn't know how to write? You know, like, what do we really know about the merit someone has until they're able to have the opportunity and the space and the ability to demonstrate it? And I think that's where the rub comes for me. Interesting. I like how you put that together in the sense that it's like, you can't really have meritocracy if you don't have a, an equal playing field of giving a person the opportunity to, to demonstrate they've actually got the skills. How do we start to change that? Are there ways you see to change that that are positive? And are there ways that you see that are some are pushing forward that perhaps are negative? I think really evaluating the purpose of education. I know that sounds very large and esoteric, but no, take us down like, there. Why not? Tell us more. <laughs> you know, education is not just about tests, right? It's about building skills and thinking and advocacy and opportunities. And I think that there's a lot of ways that we can use tech to do that. But I think that there's also a lot of ways that we can use tech to exacerbate the issues. If there are things like paywalls and, you know, cost barriers, I think we really need to look at teaching 
as a profession, teaching has not really been reformed in the way that it needs to be in such a long time. And I think it's it's a tragedy because teachers continually express how frustrated they are with the school system, with their workload. I mean, we saw in the pandemic and you would have thought, oh, after the pandemic, everyone actually knows how important teachers are. Let us actually do something to try to treat them like the people that they are. But no, we have not changed anything since the pandemic about teaching and the burnout. And we are seeing teachers leave at just really high rates. And I think when you look at probably a lot of the people that are great and leaders right now, they can probably all point to a teacher that's really changed them. And they think about Abbott Elementary, which has won so many awards because everyone resonates with the importance of great teachers. And yet we're not actually doing anything about that. And so I think in some ways, I'm a big fan of creating ed tech that is used with teacher input. Like I think that we actually should just all have panels of teachers on every ed tech company board like no ed tech should be made without a teacher because we really need to just be asking them what do you need to make education great like what do you need in your classroom and not just asking the principals and superintendents but like the teachers like the people that are with the kids every single day what are you seeing what do you need how can we help you and the government should start to fund some of that especially ed tech and i mean I, there's you know there are sbir proposals and and some funding that way but i think more needs to be done especially ed tech companies that are backed by uh, BIPOC founders or differently able founders or neurodiverse founders, people who can understand the struggles of the marginalized students that needs to serve. But I think there needs to be greater emphasis right there. And then we'll start to see a little bit of benefit and not just for, for commercial gain, but really for results. We have so much technology in this country. Like we, we have so much technology in this country. We could do a lot in education if that was really our aim. Yeah. You know, something that I think is that when it comes to, to countries, and I'm going to criticize both Canada and the U.S., if we viewed our countries as sports teams, why as a country do we not invest in our people? Why do we not invest in our education systems as opposed to investing in, perhaps this is controversial, but the military? And I understand there's a lot there, right? But it seems so disproportionate. And then from what I'm hearing from you, is, is it more of a focus on getting the input from those within the marginalized communities of, of like, what tools do we need to scale the abilities of this, uh, the, or the teachers? And not just some superintendent who's trying to check a box, but actually getting down there and, and making that available. So yeah, education goes so far. Yeah, and I think it's on a lot of levels. I mean, that's basically what I've dedicated my career to be focused on, whether that is in tech or, or otherwise, is just trying to be part of bridging that equity gap in education, because I am in so many ways a benefactor of the best schools in the country, but also of what education done right looks like, of what support done right looks like. And so I feel very much like I have a responsibility to help others and to be part. I don't want to just benefit and be like, great, I made it out and it helped me. Like, it's like, okay, I now have this responsibility to get as many other people through and really impacted by education in a way that allows them to go on and build other things, right? Like that's kind of how we start the cycle. Yes. Okay. Here's a question not directly related to our previous conversation, but what beliefs have you previously held in, let's say, the last couple of years that 
you no longer believe to be true or have changed for you? That is definitely very interesting. I think it's a big question. (laughs) It is a very big question. I do not think that I had as much, how do I say? I've learned in this journey that while money is not everything, it is essential in a way that I think we like to tell ourselves it's not. I think the thing that really blew me away is like we, again, I just have spent a lot of time talking about the importance of education and how education can increase upward mobility. Also, however, if you have $200,000, even less than that, even if you have no technical skills, can create some piece of software that can go viral and you can sell it, that is the quickest path of upward mobility, actually. <laughs> and and it's, been, it's been very like wild to consider that, right? Like, I guess a belief that I had before this whole journey is that you had to have some technical knowledge to actually be successful as a startup founder. I have none. And, and I've learned that there are a lot of very successful non-tech founders. And that is not something that I think we are saying, especially, I mean, I never heard it in high school. I, I was an English major. I did not hear it in college. No one said, would you like to start software? I, you know, I went to law school. No one said, hey, a software company, like none of these things. It was like, oh, I wish I could code, but I can't. So here we are. And so that definitely changed my perspective. But really thinking about upward mobility, generational wealth, I realized that the ability to create an asset that you can sell or a business that you can sell is actually one of the most, is one of the strongest ways to solidify generational wealth. And that's been very interesting for me to like understand. I also know that capital is never without strings, but also the thing that, you know, that can quickly kill a startup, right? The lack of capital or the mismanagement of capital. And we we don't really teach these things either. So I think that in some ways before a couple of years ago, I would have thought that And I do think that critical thinking is really important. Liberal arts education and and academic rigor, very big champions of those. But I think that in a lot of ways, what I've learned in the last couple of years is that there's another education that um, should also be taught, right? We should teach entrepreneurial skills. We should teach money management. We should teach large-scale capitalism, right? Whatever, there's probably a better word for that, one of the economics. But the business of actually having a business, selling a business, valuing a business, all of those things. And some people say, well, that's why you get an MBA. But I think if we're thinking about truly democratizing that pathway, then we need to have that knowledge a little bit further down. Oh, yeah. I think it should be first, second, third grade, just, you know, start planting those seeds. And again, it's one of those things that's mind boggling to me that it isn't, right? It's, it can give people so much purpose. And and the fact that money management isn't something that we we talk about actively. Uh, I mean, the discussion of financing and cap tables is complex to some degree <laughs> for, yeah. for a lot of people. But even the most basics of, of credit management, of managing your own credit, why is that not taught earlier? And actually, what I, when I'm just thinking through outline and what you're doing there, I started thinking about visualizing about how it could be applied there. But I'm certainly not going to tell you how to run your business, but it was a yeah, very interesting. What books or media do you most consume? What do you most enjoy? You know, it's I'm I'm reading a, a wide variety of things at this point. There was a time last year when I was reading Can't Even. It was about the millennial burnout generation, which was actually really cathartic in some ways. 
And I have started reading, um, you know, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, which I... Giving an F or giving an F? Giving an F. Okay, (laughs) yes. Not not to curse on your podcast. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, listen, we can say it, but I'm also like, then you got to check a box on iTunes saying that there's cursing and all this. Like, (laughs) let's just use the F. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's been really helpful as someone that does care greatly usually about what people think, just kind of uh, divorcing myself from that. There's also a book on rest is resistance that has been really helpful. And then have also just been interested in some books on theology and just what it looks like, especially, especially in the VC world, especially as someone that is in a world that's very, very secular. But what does it mean to be a Christian in this space? And what does it mean to navigate your own spirituality with like profitability um, and the game that is necessary to play uh, in, in the tech space? And so that's been very interesting to me. It is a game. It certainly is. And so good for you. Final thoughts for our listeners from your perspectives and from what you're doing and where you're going. What do you have for us? Yeah, I guess. One of the thoughts that I haven't changed my mind about is that there doesn't have to be a tension between doing good and being profitable, right? And and you hear about companies that have the double bottom line, triple bottom line companies. I think that's something that's very core to who I am as a person. And I actually think that when you have a mission that people believe in, the success and the profits will come. Now, that might sound naive, but I do think it's important that we don't silo the social benefits of whatever we're building um, and that we always are looking to, okay, I'm going to make this thing. Hopefully I'm going to be super successful. I'm going to have this great exit, but also I'm going to impact people along the way. And I think that level of integrity one, I think it would just be good for the VC space, probably make people feel a little bit more fulfilled. But I think it's important as a society that we prioritize that and that we put money towards that and that we fund founders who are trying to do that. And that the government also fund founders who are trying to do that. Because when you think about it, uh, if we start having these companies that are really helping society and taking care of needs that a lot of which the government should be taking care of. But if we start having these founders that are doing that good work, I will make us better as a society. Sydney, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. It's been really nice to get to know you. Thank you so much. I've loved being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.